Welcome back to another episode of the Quillette Cetera podcast. Today I'm with Oliver Trowley. Oliver is a postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton University. He's also a regular contributor to Quillette, where he writes on a number of issues, but what I'm most interested in is his commentary on online subcultures. His most recent article for Quillette is a review of Costin Almario's doctoral thesis submitted some 10 years ago to Yale's political science department. For the uninitiated, or for those of you who aren't perpetually online like myself, Costin Almario is the guy behind the large and contentious Twitter account Bronze Age Pervert, often abbreviated as BAP. Last year, both Politico and The Atlantic revealed that it was Almariu, a 43-year-old Romanian-American, who was behind the pseudonym. A pseudonym that has come to be associated with the manosphere or the new right in online circles. Bap recently published his dissertation as a book on Amazon under the title Selective Breeding and the Birth of Philosophy. Despite it selling really well, Oliver believes it doesn't add up to much for reasons he gets into in this conversation. Okay, I think that's a long enough intro. Let's get into it. How do figures such as BAP build such a following? Why are they so popular? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for having me. It's funny, in this review, I tried not to comment too much on the phenomenon. I tried to be the one person who was like, I'm just going to treat this as though any other doctoral dissertation. What would I say if this was anybody else had written this doctoral dissertation? I think that one thing that has been common among several of the people I've reviewed is the demographics of who they're aiming at. Certainly online personalities, you have to appeal to the other people who are going to be online, right? And a lot of the time that's going to be lonely people, lonely men who maybe feel that there are certain imbalances in the world or who feel they need to be told how to live or how to take charge of their own lives and things like that. So I was really struck by this, in a way, a negative comparison for BAP, because I had started thinking about this when I reviewed Jordan Peterson's book a little over five years ago. That was a Peterson's great analysis by the way, because you compared it with Chapo Trap House's book as well. Exactly. And it felt like all these people were going after the same demographic. I think I'm a little too old and also not quite lonely enough to be part of this demographic. I'm in my mid-30s. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. No, I'm 36. In that review, I was comparing Jordan Peterson's just be normal, clean your room, make your bed, don't lie to people. He had these sorts of pieces of advice. And, uh, you know, although there were a lot of problems with Peterson's book, I thought, yeah, a lot of people can benefit from that advice. And Chapo had this more of this, yeah, be like super online and burn it all down. And like, Mm. you know, it's cool to have some like conspiracy theories about the CIA and stuff like that. Who knows? Maybe they're true. I don't don't know. And it seemed like um, the BAP phenomenon is a little bit, in a way, even though it's on the right in a lot of ways, it's a bit more like the Chapo Trap House phenomenon. It's a bit more like, um, don't listen to anybody's rules. Don't think that you need to fit into this culture. You know, embrace your masculine energy, you know, burn some shit down. I think that spirit appealed to a lot of people. The Chapo Trap House book is not in any way like a self-help book and does not come equipped with a self-help message the way Peterson's does. And BAPS does have, in some ways, despite being about all these other topics, being about like ancient Greek philosophy and whatever it is, race and sex and warrior tribes and being on horseback. Um, 
you know, it, it does have, and his other book, Bronze Age Mindset, has a little bit of a feel of this is the way to make your life better is to just grab it and stop just living, but be vital and fight for what you want and be strong. Don't be weak. Don't be dominated by other people. Be strong. Be like Nietzsche said, even though I don't know, when I talk to Nietzsche people, they're like, that's not exactly, you know, what Nietzsche would have said. But To be honest, I haven't read Nietzsche. I'm probably mm-hmm. getting to that period of my life where I'm like, you know, I really should by the age of 30, I should at least have a go at it. But have there always been self-help books? Meditations was written. I don't think it was made for like public consumption, right? It was right. now it's being consumed as a self-help book. What's the history of philosophers writing sort of self-help books? It's a good question. On the one hand, I would say that the, the contemporary self-help phenomenon, well, it seems very contemporary, right? It seems to speak to something in our culture where people have this combination of being very self-involved, but also not thinking very highly of themselves, right? Or constant thoughts are like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I need to make myself better. It's like low self-esteem, but it's like high self-esteem because you think you're so important that all of your energy should be spent on yourself, right? And actually, if you go into a bookstore, sometimes you'll find, if you look in the philosophy section, sometimes you will find self-help books there, which is funny to us professional philosophers, but maybe it shouldn't be so funny. One thing that people who don't like the kind of professionalization of academic philosophy will say is that in the history of philosophy, especially ancient philosophy, philosophy was a bit more connected to sort of like immediate questions about how should I live? What sort of life should I have? In that sense of immediacy, you could think of the origins of philosophy as being a bit more connected to self-help traditions. And in fact, there's no question that the repackaging of ancient ideas is part of the contemporary self-help literature. For example, maybe the most obvious example is the Stoics, right? There's every few years, there's a new book about, you know, there are these people called the Stoics and what they thought, well, it doesn't quite matter exactly what they thought, but it was something along the lines of just don't let negative things affect you too much or something like that. And then, you know, this is like a brilliant idea that sells a lot of books. Do you agree that there's nothing new under the sun? There are no new ideas? That's a good question. Not exactly, but it certainly is the case that as being an intellectual is, I think, more about reading than it would have been at one point and less about thinking. Myself, I'm a very poorly behaved intellectual. I'm not actually a great reader. I like writing and I like thinking and I like talking to people. But for example, in writing this review, I had to kind of re-up my knowledge of Nietzsche and Strauss. They made fun of me on Twitter for admitting to this, but I didn't see it, if that helps. No, no, it's okay, it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, I do think so much has been written, and so many people are very good scholars. In philosophy, if you say, I have this idea about ethics or metaphysics, one of the main areas, often somebody will say, even if it seems like a really deep, like niche and nuanced idea, somebody will say, there's this paper from the 60s, or there's this book from the 1920s or something. One thing I learned going to Notre Dame, because it's a Catholic institution with a strong specialization in medieval philosophy, I was taught in my high school about this. There were all these smart people in the ancient world, and then there were these dark ages, and then there were smart people again in like the 1600s, right? And that's sort of like the history of the thought. But no, it turns out that there have been smart people at all points in human history. And for thousands of years, they've been writing. The amount of writing you would have to consume to really understand what people have thought before you would take a lifetime. For some academics, for some intellectuals, for some philosophers, that is the life. The life of the mind just is a life of scholarship, just constantly reading. But for me, that's not why I get into it. That's not my mindset. And yeah, the amount of time you would have to devote even for medieval philosophy, you know, if you just think, yeah, there's a different philosopher doing good stuff every decade from the year 1100 to the year 1600 or something like that. Well, that's like just an enormous amount of of writing to consume. And then after you do the reading, there's also the question of, and this came up in the review, 
and came up in my conversations around the review. There's also these questions of interpretation, right? Like I tried to read it, but then I thought it meant one thing. Somebody else thought it meant another thing. And you get into these interminable debates, right? And the BAP thesis, one of his claims is this kind of wild claim about what Plato meant in just one of his dialogues, right? Then you get into the issue of how many hundreds probably thousands of people have written, maybe tens of thousands of people have written about this one platonic dialogue. So it's not a matter of just reading this dialogue. It's a matter of reading all these other people's thoughts about this dialogue. The craziest thing is that in the Straussian tradition, which somebody emailed me to say I, I didn't completely understand it, which is its own issue, there's the question of whether people are even meaning what they're saying, right? Can you explain Straussian? Yeah, so I'm going to try my best with the disclaimer that I'm not an expert. I basically understand the term in its lay academic sense, maybe not the way that Straussians themselves would understand it. But the lay idea of Straussianism is almost used as a synonym, I think, for esotericism. It's basically the idea that you read something, you're uninitiated into it, or, or you're a certain kind of person, and you get a superficial meeting what's called this exoteric meaning. But then there's this other meaning, which like, if you're looking for it, you know, and how do you find it? Maybe they make an argument, which isn't as strong as it ought to be. And then you realize, wait, they actually don't believe in this argument. So they actually believe the opposite of what they're arguing. Or maybe they use a word that you're like, oh, I read this word in this other author. How did this author use this word? That other yeah. author was using it differently. So what if I substitute that other meaning? Like in your um, review, you mentioned that Hitler used the term pirate. And that yeah, Strauss used the term pirate. Yes, yeah, so this is a friend of mine at Notre Dame who's in the political theory department there, Linus, great guy who really helped me talking through some of these great issues. Name um, as well. Yeah, Linus. great name too. He's not responsible for anything in the review, but he was very helpful with me. He mentioned that um, if you wanted to be esoteric about it, Bronze Age Perver in his other book, Bronze Age Mindset, kind of talks about how we should be pirates. That's his vision mm -hmm. of kind of like what a band of pirates, that's what a, a man should be and that's what his friendship should be or something like that. This sort of merry band of marauders or something. And uh, Linus as well, if you look at Strauss, who is one of Bronze Age Pervert's main intellectual sources, although he claims to not be influenced as much as he might be, Strauss uses the word pirate and apparently and just this once or maybe twice and uses it to refer to Hitler, to characterize Hitler. So if you were really looking for a hidden meaning, then you could say, well, when he says pirate, he's really telling us to be accolades of Hitler. Now, do I think Bap was doing that? I don't think it was. It was just a characterization of if you really want to get into this esoteric reading. And one thing to note about it, this is one reason why I don't like getting into this esotericism, into this Straussianism, right? I'll assume that Quillette listeners kind of have a certain background and maybe certain views about this. It's almost like a mirror image of what you would do if you were woke, right? If you were woke, you would just be like, well, I want to attack this person. They say pirate. Let me just find a way to make this, yeah. make them sound like a Nazi, right? And so there's this question of the Straussians, the esotericists, there's a question of whether they, they end up well, not the actual Straussians, but maybe it's a, a possible application of the method. You end up kind of looking for these hidden meanings and accusing people of saying things that maybe they didn't mean to say. Yeah, it's quite um, conspiratorial. Yeah, you might think it's you might think that it's conspiratorial. On the other hand, to be fair to both the woke and the Straussians, one reason they say this is that there's also something listeners will be familiar with. When we write, when we speak, we're all subject to certain kinds of social and political pressures. So we can't just say how we feel because people will get angry. And even, you know, I think of myself as speaking and writing pretty freely. I don't think of myself as being too constrained by political correctness or whatever. But even for me, you know, there are certain things that I'm going to be very careful about. There are certain things that I don't want to be accused of saying. And there's other things which is like, yeah, you can associate me with that view. That's within the Overton window or whatever, right? So there is a sense in which, yeah, Straussians 
they're cognizant of the notion that people might need to hide their views and that this can affect the writing of great thinkers and should be part of our interpretation of them. That much seems like it makes sense, right? You should read between the lines and if you're aware of the pressures of somebody's time, of somebody's historical moment. So that much makes sense. And certainly we all know that affects us now, you know? And so yeah. I actually haven't read a lot of Bap's work. My best friend mm -hmm. is really into his mm -hmm. Bronze Age mindset. And I've listened to a few podcasts with him, but I actually came about him through a number of other like online sort of bodybuilding figures because I'm mm -hmm. quite into bodybuilding. Okay. And that's actually where I first heard esoteric. And well, from what I read, Hitler was into esoteric sort of ideas and like, I don't know if you know anything about that. I might be completely butchering this. No, I'll be honest. I don't know too much about that. It's probably the term esoteric being used in different ways. Esoterica are like rare objects, maybe like occult objects. Symbols. But in this sense, it's just being, it's being used to distinguish kind of two ways of reading. It's interesting about the bodybuilders. It does make sense. You know, I didn't read Bronze Age Mindset too closely, but I do know that part of this sort of overriding BAP philosophy is like, yeah, be strong be masculine, lift your weights, get big. Again, I only have a rudimentary understanding of this space, but it's not the case that everybody is in complete agreement in this space either. For example, my understanding is that Bap and his work is sort of like not big on getting married and having a family and stuff like that. That would stop you from your marauding, pirating ways. And there's also the, the issue of like sexuality for Bap. There's a lot of argument about um you know, whether he himself is gay and whether his philosophy is a philosophy of spending all your time around men, yeah. basically. It's um, quite hedonistic, right? It's hedonistic and strength-based, but also there's other hints of the sorts of relationships among men that he discusses in the thesis. This didn't make it way into, its way into my review, but in the thesis, he's always talking about just throws in weird comments about um, the way to educate a man of good breeding is sort of like it involves being taken to the forest by some like wild man of the forest and he turns a boy into a man or something. And of course, in ancient Greece, there's a lot of education through pederasty. So I, I don't want to speculate too much on that. There are gay writers who have talked about, here's my sense of the sexuality of BAP. You know, Blake Smith has an article in Tablet where he talks a lot about that. And, my best uh, friend I is gay. So, uh -huh. and he loves BAP, so maybe it's... <laughs> yeah, it could be. Maybe could be. I don't, gaydar yeah. is going off. <laughs> it could be. And I have none. I have no gaydar at all. So I have no idea. I didn't know much about them until some of the people came after me for the reviews. Even the way they write their names. So there are people like Raw Egg Nationalist, Nationalist. And like Disgraced Propagandist. And it's sort of like you have these waves of like putting together adjectives. It's yeah. like a name, but it's also sort of like a slogan or a mm -hmm. brand. Even Bron and Bronze Age Pervert kind of fits that too. It's so a like great here brand. Two, Great name, really. It's a really. good band. It's, here are the two things mm. that I am. Bronze Age and Pervert. I was mm. thinking about Solbra, the Aussie oh, yeah, bodybuilder. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely a big part of these specific circles. And yeah, there was, after the review came out, there were a bunch of comments of like, how much do you lift? And you should get the rest of your hair back and things like that. They're definitely very concerned with like masculinity and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. They're genuinely into to the BAP way of thinking. The idea is genuinely caught on. And um, this is a Nietzschean view, right? That strength is something to be celebrated. Weakness is not something to be celebrated. So I think it's a view that you can get from Nietzsche. I'm not a Nietzsche scholar and I don't want to okay. commit to, as an academic, we don't like to take positions on things other mm -hmm. academics have thoughts mm -hmm. about, which is maybe a little silly, but I think there is a way of interpreting Nietzsche that way. When I've talked to Nietzsche people about the Bat book, 
Some of them have been skeptical about his interpretations. You could look for hidden meanings in Nietzsche too. So it's not clear that when Nietzsche says has a character saying something about strength or puts out a thesis about strength, he's not somebody who says, here's my claim and here's how I'm going to defend it. You know, that's what we do in a professional philosophy journal. Nietzsche is somebody who says, here's a dialogue between two people or he'll talk in these little aphorisms and things like that. So there's a lot of interpretive work to be done. And so I, I would just say that not everybody would agree with that, but it is a message that you can get out of Nietzsche mm-hmm. is like, Strength is good, weakness is bad. When Nietzsche talks about the ancient world, again, many listeners will probably know this better than me. I'm doing my best to remember. When he talks about the ancient world, he does talk about that as having been a sort of ideal and then being inverted. He thinks of the kind of Christian moral system as one in which weakness and victimhood and things like that are actually prized and Mm. and strength is denigrated, right? And there's an Um, argument that's where sort of woke ideology comes from, right? Yeah, so there's definitely views. And I do think this is part of what gets BAP in particular, his purchase in the current Mm -hmm. culture, right? Is that you have this view, or even not a view, just this way of life that how do I get things? I get things by being a victim. I get things by complaining. I get things by suing somebody who's wronged me, right? In America, we live in a very litigious culture. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but people are always suing each other. And it's just more and more lawsuits every year. How do you get into college in America? Well, here's my personal statement. And it's all about how somebody hurt me or Mm. I have, I'm Mm. diverse and being diverse means being a victim, Mm. right? My American Idol story. Exactly. (laughs) My sub story, yeah. We all know that this is part of the culture. The culture praises, not overtly praises, but the culture is about you achieve things by saying, I deserve to have this because I was hurt on this other occasion. I think in a way, the good thing about BAP or about BAP's philosophy is it's good to look at ourselves and be like, in what ways am I making myself weak rather than making myself strong? Because that's part of how we get things in our culture. Wouldn't it be different, at least, to just get really strong and just take what you want rather than being weak and begging for it and saying, somebody else hurt me, so you should give me this other thing. Why don't you just get strong and just beat up anybody who gets in your way, right? That's not exactly what Bab says, but I think that's the driving idea. It's very different than the culture that's developed in America and around wokeism in particular. It does feel radical in a way, like me going to the gym, which I do regularly, like to get stronger, building Mm -hmm. my body. It does feel like a statement to the world in some sense. And it's really, I sort of want to write a book on this, actually. I'm very inspired by Camille Paglia and her Mm -hmm. concept of Amazonian feminism. And I want to, nobody copy my book idea. I want to wrap it into bodybuilding because I think for me, building my body has really, or my strength has really brought me back to feminism, which Mm -hmm. distanced myself from it, from like third wave feminism, bodybuilding is very empowering. And I truly do feel like I can't be fucked with, you know? Yeah. I That's feel a good feeling. Invincible. That's not a feeling yeah. that I have. It's a good feeling to have. And and I think in a way, that's where the philosophy meets the self-help in, in the sense of, yeah, it is a self-help message to be like, stop whining. Just build yourself into somebody who can't be fucked with. And that's something, yeah, I can certainly understand. Like anybody, there have been times in my life when people have fucked with me. And I think it's, it's great to get yourself to a point where you sort mm. of feel like, okay, that's not going to happen because people can tell not to mess with me. But I think, you know, as a woman, it's sort of different because obviously I can still be, you know, attacked by physically by men. But, and Camille talks about this. She talks about like Brazilian women and Mediterranean women that they walk down the street with 
this energy, they don't show themselves as victims. I think in sort of Anglo-Saxon cultures, I don't know if it's the Protestant sort of history or what, but we're more meek. So I just walk down the street feeling a bit more empowered now. Cliche. Yeah. No, and I do think it's funny. In some ways, it does make more sense in the feminist context, because obviously empowerment has been a huge feminist theme for years. And the idea of being like, yeah, if you really want to be empowered, maybe stop complaining and get really strong. That makes a lot of sense because you're literally becoming more powerful, right? That's if you Mm -hmm. want empowerment, becoming strong is strength and power. They're basically synonyms, right? And I do think it makes sense that it's physicalized, right? And this is something Bap does a lot. He says, I'm talking about this notion of nature, but nature is all about the body. He's into beautiful and strong body. This is years ago now, but my understanding is that at one point his Twitter feed was mostly pictures of muscled men, men from mm. behind, usually. Mm-hmm. Not women, so I've heard. Not women. No, 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 yeah. not women. Um, he's actually made comments that female beauty is second to male beauty. Yeah, well, that might raise the sexuality <laughs> question again, but maybe he means it in a philosophical way. Who knows? So on the self-help level, it's funny. People on Twitter were like, oh, he couldn't help saying this. It was like, no, no, no. I said what he did badly. I wanted to say what he did well. Nobody stuck my head in a toilet until I wrote this. I wanted to say there is a sense in which even as a doctoral dissertation, you can feel through his style, through the themes that he picks, through the examples that he picks, you can feel this sort of sense of, yeah, do live, take hold of your life, be more powerful, be more assertive. And uh, yeah, you do feel this in BAP. And uh, whether that manifests as going to the gym or not, maybe it just manifests as sort of being more in touch with your physical nature in some other way. But selective reading is the, the title of the book. The dissertation was called The the Problem of Tyranny um, Uh, in the Philosophy of Plato and Nietzsche or something like this. To me, it was clear that he was trying to reframe his work. And again, if I wanted to write about race differences and genetics are real or something, I wouldn't be quoting Plato and Pindar, right? I would be Mm -hmm. quoting some like biologists or whatever, right? If that was the theme I wanted to go with, right? So I do think there was a lot of reframing going on of this book that seems like it's about Plato and Strauss and Nietzsche is actually about like the sexual marketplace and about race differences and things like that. So I do think he was he was really trying to market it to the online right wing people, (laughs) right? And to make it seem edgier. And it's obviously worked because it sold a lot of copies. It's obviously worked. And I do Mm. think a lot of people who bought it likely read the introduction and then noped out when they got to the actual dissertation, because like most dissertations is, and I say this as somebody who just defended a dissertation less than six months ago, right? My dissertation was not any better, probably significantly worse than his. They're slow going. They have a lot of citations. They have a lot of detail, and it's really hard to understand them if you're not already working in the field, right? And this was true in many ways of of this dissertation. Do we know if Bab copied his dissertation, or has he edited it for a book? My understanding from people who read both is that it's mostly pretty much unchanged. There are Mm. places where he switches from saying this dissertation to this book. I didn't read the dissertation before the book came out, but my understanding is that there's very few changes made. I'm here on a Quillette podcast, right? I'm not going to be like, oh, you're so mean. Why are you being so racist or sexist, right? That's not the problem. It's just like, you know, he's marketing it as a book that has these edgy themes, but really it's a book about Plato and Nietzsche, the way his dissertation title said it was. I liked your quote. At times, it seems like the book is mostly intended to establish a kind of ranking system of which things are good or bad in online lingo based or cringe hunting is based farming is cringe tyranny is based democracy is cringe strength is based morality is cringe living fully is based mere existence is cringe and so on and that's definitely something 
I've seen a lot of online and spill over into real conversations yeah. in person as well. It's just such a simplistic way of seeing things and it sort of worries me yeah. when people think it's true intellectual analysis. And I, I do think that this is part of what makes it effective as self-help, right? You need to be able to say, you really shouldn't live this way and you really should live this other way, right? You need to be able to make these sharp distinctions and you really need to have a value system which says this is the good life, this is not the good life, right? It's hard to see what the connection between some of these things actually is, right? And he doesn't exactly establish it. The strict, rigorous argumentation is sometimes lacking. So he has this vision of, oh, wouldn't it be great if like men were strong again and like back on horseback and like all of these things. But then if you want like a philosophical account, you know, like, okay, this was a period of history where people did this. You want a philosophical account of why do all these things go together? Why do all the other things on the other side go together? That to me felt like it was not actually part of the book. It wasn't really established. In some ways, this book doesn't really state a clear thesis or it states different ones that are not the same thing. The book's thesis has something to do with the relationship between philosophy and tyranny. So those are two things. They go together on the base side, right? In a way, the book is trying to prove that, okay, we all agree that philosophy is based, but let me show how it's actually the same as tyranny. And then we can all agree that tyranny is based too, right? But for that too, he doesn't actually give an argument for it. That was the main thing that I felt was missing. It's just, I want to hear an argument. It's great to learn a lot. You know, I did feel at times like I was learning a lot, although I wasn't sure quite how much I could trust the presentation in the book. Um, and I know you've argued that you're not necessarily concerned that BAP is dangerous. And I know in previous, I think in a 2017 piece you wrote for us about Angela Nagel's book on that yeah, right? Yeah, my very first, yeah. Yeah. Or you, my second, I think. You said there as well that you're not super concerned that these online alt-right sort of 4chan communities are that dangerous. And I sort of agree, but I guess just what's been happening lately with the war in the Middle East and people supporting terrorists at home in the West. I'm sure we've both seen terrorist sympathizers or apologists online who mm. are like, you know, it happened with Putin. Putin was seen bareback on a horse and people like based, you know, he's a yeah. strong version of, you know, and he looks kind of muscular in that picture. Yeah. He I remember that good. picture. He did look Looks good. Like I'm not sure which body double it was, but he did look very good. Um, <laughs> And, you know, with the Taliban too, I remember photos circulating of Taliban fighters on Twitter and guys in this sort of community saying, you know, based at least they're like, they're strong men who are fighting for something. Yeah, that yeah. happened with the BAP community after 10-7. I don't remember exactly who was on what side, but there was this question of, wait, BAP, isn't this exactly what you wanted for roving bands of men to go in and just kill whoever they want and have sex with whoever they want and take what they want and then continue marauding, you know, like right off on mm -hmm. horseback. And that was the point at which I BAP was like, wait, I think he was basically like, that's not exactly what I think men should be doing. That's good that he but said yeah, that. Yeah, mm. I, I don't remember. I, I, I don't want to mm. put words in his mouth or anybody yeah. else's mouth, but I know that there was a discourse among his people about that. It can certainly be very disturbing, these online movements, for those of us who are also very online, which I certainly am. Seems like you are too. And when you see a tweet about how the people of the party who were getting machine gunned down by the people in the parachutes, how they all deserved it or something like, yeah, we can find that pretty disgusting. I think there's a concrete question about whose opinions matter for politics, whose opinions lead to political outcomes and which opinions. Often people will say things online because it makes them feel cool or powerful. It's easier than going to the gym, right? If you want to feel powerful, you can just say, oh yeah, I would kill those people too. And that makes you mm -hmm. feel like you're 
a fighter too somehow, even though then you go back to your, your job stocking shelves the next day or whatever. One thing that people have said about the BAP crowd, and I don't know how true this is, but I do hear this, you know, on a postdoc at a conservative program. They say that in conservative circles in DC, there are people who are, they think that there's this like fifth column of Bronze Age pervert supporters who are going to be like activated in the next Trump administration and suddenly and have some sort of coup or something. I don't think that's going to happen either, right? Like whenever you hear stories of like, here's how the online people would actually get political power in the real world, it seems unlikely somehow. It seems like that's not the sort of the way that things work. At least that's usually my impression. Well, in Um, Australia, we have compulsory voting. mm -hmm. So everyone has to have a voice. I've thought about how much time I've dedicated to trying to change minds on social media, because I can't help but think maybe it's naive, but think if I can really educate someone on yeah. the history of the complex conflict in, in Israel, that maybe they will vote for a party that is more sympathetic towards Israel. And maybe I will make that change, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's tough because when we're in these arguments, they feel really important. It feels like this argument, I just have to convince this person that it's right or wrong and that's going to settle the whole But actually, usually for me, at least, maybe I overstate this, but to me, it's sort of like, well, politically speaking, I don't matter. And the person I'm arguing with doesn't matter either, right? I'm lucky enough to know some interesting people. I know people who matter in politics. I know people who are who work for senators and determine their policy stuff. And I I know people who work in the White House and who have worked in other White Houses. But um, even that, the chain of this person does this, and then this person does this, and then this happens, it's still going to be such a long chain, right? And one thing I think that the kind of meta argument you get into online a lot, it comes up when people talk about should left wingers have debates with right wingers and stuff like that. So it comes up in the no platforming discourse sometimes. There's this question of is convincing the people who disagree with us the way to win at politics or is there some other way? So if you look at anti-woke stuff, and I'm not saying that I agree with him, I think he, he has very different approach than me. But somebody like Chris Rufo, that's somebody who's politically effective, right? What Chris Rufo did was he found a way, there was all this anti-woke sentiment and he found places to put it places to channel it that had concrete connections with political power, right? And I think maybe now Bill Ackman, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the U.S. stories about the college Mm -hmm. presidents. Maybe now Bill Ackman is somebody who's trying to do that too. Of course, Bill Ackman is also somebody with a ton of money and that often leads to power in politics for better or for worse. But that's also a situation where people have to do some thinking about there's the sentiment and how does it lead to First of all, what do we even want from this situation, which I think there's no consensus about among the anti-woke, and how do we get there? For example, with the president of UPenn, which is a, you know, a great school and Ivy League institution, lost her job because of this, but it's not clear what's going to happen next, right? Another article I wrote for Quillette was reviewing Richard Hanania's book. Mm-hmm. So Hanania had a book about, in a way, Hanania is this, but for wokeness, right? He's, if you want to understand wokeness, don't look at some academics or philosophers arguing with each other, trying to convince each other, right? That's just this weird, inchoate language garble, right? Look at what decisions were made by people in power, what decisions had actual causal effects, when did they happen? And he says it goes back to the 60s and 70s and the civil rights era and the judicial interpretation or misinterpretation of the civil rights acts and things like that. I think he goes a little too far, as I try to explain in the review, but I think that people who are really into ideas, which is probably you and me and a lot of listeners and a lot of Quillette people, can often assume that others are interested in ideas and that the way to win at politics is having the best ideas. The way to influence politics is by debating ideas. And the way to be good at politics is by improving your ideas and things like that. And it's not completely false. Again, it's easy to overstate, but there's also this fact that 
ideas need to find their realization in the world somehow. Ideas need to find their avenue. Yeah, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. He's just like, so far, he's a smart guy, but he's not particularly political person. But he does feel like he needs to have an opinion on everything these days. And I was explaining to him that I think it is part of this sort of woke ideology, for lack of a better term, that if you are silent on an issue, you're part of the problem. So therefore, people feel like they need to have an opinion. Yeah. And that is something, it's funny because I think that is something that in some ways a lot of woke and anti-woke people share. They think that it's sort of like, it's really important for us as individuals to get the ideas right and then participate in the discourse in some way, right? I like getting the ideas, but it's much more important that like Joe Biden gets the ideas right than that I do, Mm. right? I'm just some guy. I think that's something that the more closely connected people are with practical politics, Again, I'm thinking of friends who live in D.C. who work with legislature or who work in law, maybe who do like appellate litigation and things like that. And the U.S., the way the Supreme Court has changed is a great example, right? In, in the U.S., we had the right-wing originalists. They had a set of ideas, a theory of judicial interpretation, and I think they really believed those ideas. They really believed that's what law is and that's the right way to interpret the laws. They figured out their concrete way of here's how we're going to get these ideas spread and here's what the actual political consequences will be. You got the ideas spread by getting people into the right law schools, getting people to teach at the right law schools, getting lists of names of judges to to senators and, and presidents. And then eventually, if you have enough presidents who are friendly, you end up overturning Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and sending the abortion decision back to the states rather than having it at the Supreme Court level. But even there, there's the question of in terms of the political power, it's not clear that they completely won because then you still need to win in terms of the state legislatures, some of whom have defended abortion, right? Even some states that you would expect to be anti-abortion. The connection between the ideas and the outcomes, there's always many other steps, always many practical steps. I want to talk a bit about your upcoming book. Is this your first book? It's my first book. In part, it came out of teaching a class. I also, in some ways, I taught the class to help myself write the book. It's a book about political beliefs and basically, in a way, kind of about what we've just been talking about, right? If you wanted to get your political beliefs right, if that was important to you, what sorts of evidence would you use? How would you go about it? It entertains some positions which most philosophers haven't talked about much and most political scientists haven't talked about much. So, for example... One position is simply we should be skeptics about politics. We shouldn't really have any strong beliefs. There's a lot of possible reasons for that. Politics is very complicated. A lot of people disagree with us. We have a lot of bad incentives when it comes to our political beliefs. We want to fit in with a a group that is maybe different from another group. Then there's the fact that mainstream political beliefs change so much over time. It starts by asking the question of like, which beliefs are political and which aren't. I reject the notion that everything is political. I go over some possible arguments for that. They're all very bad arguments. That's not something that I think many people have done in, in academia yet, is go through those arguments. It's with an academic press and it's written as a textbook. Obviously, it would be great if it were read more widely than that. But it, it is one of the goals of the book is to be pretty comprehensive, to talk about what are all the different topics, polarization, expertise, democracy, free speech, and what are all the different topics that you might talk about when you're talking about political beliefs. So that the hope is that, um, you know, like a good undergrad student will be able to understand it. Maybe in some places, maybe I didn't quite accomplish that. It's always a struggle doing public writing as an academic because you have this academic culture where you have to write in a very specialized way. And then you do this public writing where you have to have, you know, write in a complete opposite way without specialization. <laughs> but yeah, the audience, you know, as broad as possible is good, but it is basically written to be something where you could do a college course basically directly from it. It's supposed to be about that length, about that kind of level of sophistication, whatever the right word is. Okay. And it's being published in May? That's the hope. Yeah. I haven't corresponded with them, but that's the that's what they have on their website, Rutledge. That's the publisher. I picked a cover and stuff. It's very exciting. I've never done anything like this before. 
Congrats. Um, yeah, so it'll be cool to have a physical copy. It's also a little scary. I probably got a bunch of things wrong, and now I'm going to be associated with them for the rest of my life. I guess I'm used to that now. Yeah, your Twitter fans and yeah. haters will come after you. Uh, exactly. Okay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think we better wrap up now. We've been going for almost an hour. Thanks so much for having me.